Well, the role of Sabeth Fitzgibbons in today's liturgy will be played by me, her understudy, Peter Strymer. Sabeth, in an abundance of caution, is in quarantine because her daughter tested positive for COVID, but her symptoms so far are mild, and we pray for her complete recovery and the safety of the rest of the family. And we certainly continue to pray constantly for all those affected by this pandemic, which includes all of us. As a retired rector, I can only imagine what it has been like to try to keep the faith in our congregations during these trying times. Who thought just about every church would be broadcasting our liturgies the way so many have had to learn on the fly to do like we have here? And thanks to all those who make that possible, and a quick hello to everyone watching at home. Now to our gospel. So when you hear that gospel lesson, it's pretty easy to share the feelings that the other ten disciples had about those two brothers, James and John. But the meaning of this story becomes a bit murkier when you include the three verses that preceded today's lesson. Here's what it says right before this lesson about James and John. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit upon him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So it's right after that harsh teaching that these two brothers say to Jesus, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. Glory, mockings, spitting, flogging, murder, that is some kind of glory. So I'm willing to give these two brothers the benefit of the doubt to say that they think they know exactly what it is they're asking for to stand beside Jesus, arm in arm with him, one at his left and one at his right, as he faces the terrible days ahead that await him and his followers in Jerusalem. It's important to know where this story falls in Mark's gospel. We're no longer attending picnics on hillsides with food for 5,000. We've left behind our quiet teaching sessions in friendly and welcoming synagogues. Our faces are now set for Jerusalem. And Jesus gives fair warning to any who would follow him there of what it is that awaits them, and it ain't pretty. It is to this that these sons of Zebedee, or as Jesus called them earlier in Mark, the sons of thunder, say, we want to stand right beside you from now to your glory and into the resurrection. 
And if you study the scriptures and traditions, you wouldn't expect anything less of these two. In James and John, you have two of the three members of Jesus's executive committee. They, along with Peter, by this time in Jesus' ministry, have emerged as the leaders of the disciples. They were some of the first disciples called, as we hear the story in the very first chapter of Mark, right after Jesus calls his first set of fishermen brothers, Peter and Andrew, he just moves up lake a little bit and calls this second set. And this is how it's described in, in the gospel. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. From the very beginning, James and John followed Jesus. And we learned that they become Jesus' most fierce defenders, his enforcers, like the time in Samaria when they asked Jesus if they should take action against this faceless village. They say right to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and just consume them? So these two brothers are always right at Jesus' side during the most important moments of Jesus' unfolding ministry. Peter, along with James and John, were Jesus' three closest disciples. And we know this because there's three accounts in the gospel where Jesus only permits these three to come with him. And they alone witness some of the most significant moments of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus goes to heal the daughter of the synagogue leader Jairus, he only allows Peter, James, and John to come with him to see Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. At the transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John onto a mountaintop where he is transfigured and they alone see his true identity. There Jesus speaks with Moses and Elijah and then a voice from a cloud tells the disciples, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. James and John heard the voice of God telling them who Jesus was. And then, I don't know if you can see, but this beautiful window here, the Garden of Gethsemane, after the Last Supper, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus takes all of his disciples into the garden, but he tells the group to stay and keep watch. And then he takes Peter and James and John further on with him to pray. At St. Peter with the white halo and James and John, faithful to Jesus, yet sound asleep. For whatever reason, Jesus allowed Peter, James, and John to see and experience more of who he was and more of what he was capable than any of the others. And the logical reason would be that he saw them as his most trusted followers. 
this doesn't end at the resurrection. After the crucifixion and resurrection, James and John continued to be leaders of this new young movement called the Way. In the scriptures, you don't read that much about a number of the disciples, but you do hear the stories of James and John. James becomes the first martyred disciple when King Herod's grandson has him executed with a sword in 42 AD. So the fact that James was considered such a prominent figure to be singled out for execution shows what an important leader he was in that early church. John, on the other hand, was the last of the disciples to die, probably as late as 96 AD. You remember in the Gospel of John that as Jesus was dying on the cross, Jesus entrusted his own mother Mary to John's care. And John becomes the source, the author, the inspiration for the Gospel of John, the Revelation of John, the three letters of John, that all together make up a fifth of all of our New Testament scriptures. So these are really the heads of the church at the beginning, along with Peter. One is martyred, and one is the longest living, both of them remaining faithful witnesses. And yet, in our gospel story, these two don't quite get it. Jesus says to them, the cup I drink, you will drink, and the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. And then he calls all of his followers together, and he lays this one on them. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom the rev those they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. That's God's new math. And even these exemplar disciples cannot wrap their heads around it. Can we, Jesus' new disciples, in this present age, can we wrap our heads around what this discipleship means on the road to Jerusalem? Because at this point in Mark's story, Jesus is making disciples and choosing followers who will be with him till the end. And last week we heard Peter say, we have left everything and will follow you. But even the chosen ones, the ones he is closest to, are just not quite up to the task. But ultimately, that doesn't really matter. Because Jesus loves them still. Jesus loves us all, whether we're up to the task or we fail dismally. God's love for us in Christ is undiminished. It is eternal. It is unconditional. It is complete. It is forever. Whether we can faithfully follow Jesus on the road or turn away in fear, God still loves us unconditionally and accepts us for who we are.
If James and John could miss the mark, then we must have just as deep a challenge in knowing how to respond to God's extravagant love. And if we can't rise to the moment, Jesus will lift us up anyway. It's just that life could be so much richer walking the path with Jesus if we can just figure out how to do it. And the key is there in God's new math. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I wish us all the strength and wisdom and grace to find our way alongside Jesus.